It is John Saxon's story podcast with the author, Nikki Hayes, and I am Jenny Hatch. Week by week, we are reading each chapter of Nikki's biography of John Saxon, which not only tells the story of John Saxon, the mathematician and the book publisher, it also documents the math wars in America. So, Nikki, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Jenny? I'm good. This week, my husband and I are celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary. Oh, so it's, it's an exciting week for us. Yeah. And um, so happy to be spending time on this project. I think of all the work I have done over the years, this book is going to shake out to be my favorite project. Aww. And if if only for the reason that I have a new friend mentor. I'm even calling her my adoptive mother, Nikki Hayes. So we are going to dive in with chapter seven this week, and we're only going to read the first half of it. It's quite a lengthy chapter, and it's titled A Father's Legacy, and the subheading is, That's My Daddy. He's eccentric as hell, but he's a good guy. And that's what John said about himself in 1987. So, Nikki, why don't you read the first paragraph? Okay. As empty as John may have left Mary Esther's emotional need bucket, he was consistent and overflowing with love for his children. This love affair was infectious among the kids and their father throughout his life with the development of a sibling solidarity that continues to the present day. While their reverence for him as a father is clearly revealed in their stories and remembrances of him, his admiration for them was recorded in the first of numerous home videos that he made as oral histories. In 1987, he was recuperating from a stroke and still feeling a little shaky due to the trouble with his blood pressure at 170 over 110. Sitting in Mimi's rocking chair, which had been refinished and recaned, and now ensconced in his buttercup yellow den, John said he thought he might stroke out. So he wanted to leave his children some special thoughts he had about each of them. He started by saying, you won't get to see this until I'm dead, but don't worry about it. Everybody's going to die. You need to think about what a wonderful trip I had with a job that allowed me to come home and spend time with you, which is what I wanted to do more than anything in the world. I don't know how anybody could have had a better trip. He wanted to tell them how much joy they had given them, given him. You have my genes, and a lot of the way you think is because you've been around me, said John. It gives me a sense of pride to think I had anything to do with the way you lovely people turned out. You accept responsibility. You're kind. I think you are wonderful, and I'm so proud of you. Then John starts naming specifics about each child. We had so much fun together, Selby. You had a red parka. There was a time when you were about 10, and we were skiing in Aspen, and I wanted to ski the barrel with you, Spar Gulch. But you were really fast. I kept yelling your name, but you didn't stop. 
When they reached the bottom, John asked her why she was skiing so fast, and she said, because I have to go to the bathroom. He he remembered their golfing and fishing times in Florida and how Selby kept putting water on the fish on the towel in the back seat of the car. And he said he was sorry that she didn't get to be a, uh, and he said he was sorry that she didn't get to be a, quote, big green Indian, close quote. That was because the family moved to Norman, Oklahoma during Selby's ninth grade year. And that meant she didn't get to attend the high school in Fort Walton, Florida. The school's mascot was the Chocotagawachi Indians. John told Selby that she's got it made. He recounted how she had been published in the American Journal of Cardiology and was doing her rotation as a pharmacy intern at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. She decided later to switch to medical school. He told Johnny that as the eldest, he had made the family, quote, go, close quote, that he had never told his daddy a lie. I don't know how you did that. You always came around first and told me what you did. He added, Johnny, you were so proud of Brucey, even though he could do things you couldn't do, and you never put him down. John laughed out loud as commenting that Johnny had inherited his, quote, love, unquote, for studying. I hated studying so bad, and I watched your agony in undergraduate school, and I remember you didn't want to do the work in a course that was going to get you into medical school. Then he said, I understood. Man, oh, I understood. But Johnny studied hard enough. Grandma was here the day the envelope came with the letter, saying you had been admitted to medical school. I cried like a baby, and Grandma cried with me. Even though Johnny had hated to study in medical school, he had hung in there. You're a real fine doctor. We both had a difficult time getting there. But think of the tens of thousands that didn't graduate. My number one son graduated from medical school. All I did was graduate from West Point. In another video, Selby was sitting in her father's lap as they as they retold a story to the family about their trip to Africa's Serengeti National Park and an airplane mishap. They were in Kenya, and their small plane had crashed at full throttle off the runway. John said he was sure the Lord looked down and said, Stay that hand, because that man's going to write me a physics book. They saw zebra-striped vans coming toward them from the end of the runway, and the pilot came out from the cockpit. John told him, get your butt back in then front. Another passenger was also a pilot. They saw zebra-striped vans coming toward them from the end of the runway, and the pilot came out from the cockpit. John told him, get your butt back in the front. Another passenger was also a pilot, and John and he checked out the plane before it taxied back onto the runway to take off again. When he reported the incident as a case of incompetence of the pilot, he said the people in charge just laughed at him. Selby, smiling at her father's rendition of the event, completed the story by saying they did get to their destination eventually. John was proud of Sarah's pharmacy degree and said she was a lot like him because she had taken six years, a longer time, to get her degree. A great frustration for him, he said, 
was the time after the divorce from Mary Esther, when he couldn't be with Sarah every morning when she woke up. She was ten years old at the time and his youngest child. I wanted to be with you, Sarah, and I am heartbroken about those years we missed being together. Now, years after the divorce, John still evidently felt the pain of that daily separation from Sarah. We took that lovely trip to Hot Springs, and we got to go to England and Scotland. But that didn't make up for all the time I, get, I didn't get to see you. Then there was a message to Bruce, his third child. You have been the easiest to get along with, Brucey, with the best nature. He expressed deep concern that Bruce was doubting himself in some areas of his life. John said, God loves you, just as you are. You don't have to do anything special. You are totally sufficient for Johnny and Selby and Sarah to have you as a brother. His pride in Bruce's also becoming a position was shared as he continued to talk about the relationships he observed among his children. John told his children he decided to make this first videotape because he had been at the golf course that afternoon and become very tired. He remembered that when Mimi died, he hadn't told her how much he had enjoyed his own children. He said at the time he didn't have the guts to do that. Then he added, don't y'all feel bad about not saying anything to me. I know you have said it to me hundreds of times by your words, deeds, and actions. That makes me feel so wonderful that you could be proud of me. Yeah. I know you say, that's my daddy. He's eccentric as hell, but he's a good guy. He concluded, having your approval means a lot to me. I know I embarrass people sometimes. Approval from those I hold in high esteem is important to me, though. Ask his children their most memorable characteristics of John Saxon as a father, and a wealth of stories comes forth. For Johnny, who can quickly tear up when asked to recall memories of his father, it was his dad's unconditional love. That has remained with me as a father myself today. When I was 19, I quit college and decided to be a ski bum in Colorado for two years. I knew I could always come home. Selby said her father didn't put his foot down on anything once they got out of high school. He always said, my job is to prepare you to do anything you want to in the world. Until you leave my house at 18, you'll do what you're told. Further, he would say, don't tell me what you want to do in school. You don't know what you want because you're not old enough now to make those decisions. You don't know what life holds for you as an adult, and you don't know what you'll need. You'll take three years of foreign language, all the math and sciences offered, and the history and literature courses. My job is to prepare you for life. I don't care if you work at Target when you graduate and leave my house, if that's what makes you happy. If you choose to do other things, you'll be able to do so because I did my job as a father. Although Johnny had thought he would follow in his father's footsteps and join the military, that decision was derailed when he was 10 years old and had to start wearing eyeglasses. When Bruce was in the fourth grade, he also was fitted with glasses. 
Until those events, both boys had seen fighter pilots and military men as their role models. Now, their father pointed out the important roles of their two uncles, who were physicians. He explained how they were respected, helped people in a meaningful way, and would always be able to put bread on the table because doctors would always be needed. Johnny's college friends thought his dad was the coolest guy because he was always so interested in them and what they were doing. He always wanted to know what their plans were and what they were doing to meet them. As a student at the University of Oklahoma, Johnny would bring his friends to the house on Sundays because the college cafeteria was closed. Anytime a newcomer was in the group, Johnny would have to explain that the price of admission to his house was listening to his father for the first 15 minutes as he explained how he was going to save mathematics education. <laughs> I love that. It reached the point that his friends looked forward to coming to see, quote, the boss, unquote, who was always working at the dining room table. They had also discovered that since John was writing his math books, he had to create all the word problems himself, and that meant he was using Johnny's friends' names in those problems. Bob Moxley, Don Deason, and Bobby Zwan were among them. To this day, my friends remember the problems and page numbers involving their names. When John was younger, he coached Little League football. So when he was 52 years old, he would play pool and touch football with Johnny and his friends. Of course, he didn't move for three days after playing football, laughed Johnny. He said his competitive father believed that understanding the principles and value of competition was important. When Johnny had his dad come to his home in Muskogee, Oklahoma, they would play golf with various friends. John always wanted to play for five cents, quote, aside, unquote. At the end of 18 holes, if anyone owed John money, he insisted on being paid an exact change. If he were owed 10 cents, recall Johnny, he wouldn't accept a quarter. The loser had to pay the exact change. Johnny said it wasn't about the wager. His dad just believed a person would play twice as hard not to lose five cents as he would not to lose five dollars, especially if he were required to pay an exact change. So it was the lessons of the competition that were important. His son said, John clearly appreciated his winnings as reflected in a collection of nickels that were displayed on the mantle over his fireplace. When visitors asked the meaning of his collection, John would say, I won those from my son. <laughs> okay. Quote, my father was a Renaissance man, close quote, said Johnny. His passions included ancient history, great literature, and great poetry. Johnny remembered when John, who was fluent in French, talked the French consulate in Houston into donating 30 copies of Impressionist art to Oscar Rose Community College, where he was teaching. He wanted the art to hang in the hallways of the buildings because the students would be exposed to art all around them. John later donated $250,000 to the University of Oklahoma to fund a professor's chair in ancient history. 
Yet his father had a command presence of a military leader in a room, and said his son, and no one had to get a group quiet for him to start talking. Being very impressed with writer William F. Buckley Jr.'s vocabulary, John, in his 50s, picked up a dictionary and started with the letter A. He went through countless stenographer notebooks, making countless personal notes that would have the word on one side and the definition and roots on the other. This allowed him to, quote, flip and memorize, unquote. His extended vocabulary was used in his math books and written articles and would, strangely enough, cause anxious students and readers to complain about the use of words they didn't understand. John's suggestion to them? Look up the words and learn about them. In fact, before his death, it was his goal to write books on teaching vocabulary and English while using methods he had honed in his mathematics textbooks. Remembering one such proposed English lesson on vocabulary, Selby said, here's an example that he taught me that I've never forgotten. There are these four words, propensity, proclivity, penchant, and predilection. Those all mean to be inclined toward or have a leaning toward something. He had one word picture for these four words. It's a man leaning over the top of a cliff, proclivity, with two pins in one hand, propensity and penchant, and an ice cream cone in the other. The word predilection was for licking the ice cream cone. Then you just have to learn the nuances of how to use the words, Daddy said. His word book would allow you to bring together four or five words immediately that meant the same thing. He had a strong, strong command of the English language. Regarding his father's later success as a publisher of mathematics textbooks, Johnny said everybody's financial rewards in his company were a byproduct of their quote, doing the right thing, unquote. There was no money for computers or desks or expenses. If anyone needed a secretary, it was up to that person to find one and pay her. All the sales representatives had been math teachers and had used Saxon math textbooks, and they were real believers. In fact, the first 12 salespeople with the company were called its disciples <laughs> because their job was simply to help in John's mission of changing math education in America. It wasn't about making money, said John. The financial results that had come to consultants and those working with Saxon publishers were beyond their imagination because their mission had remained from the beginning to sell the Saxon program. And that is the end of the middle of chapter seven. Any comments, Nikki? I am just sitting here thinking of all, this last paragraph, especially that if somebody wanted a secretary, they had to find one and pay for her. And there's a place in the book where it said that what made so many other people mad about John Saxon and his people who worked for him or adopted Saxon math was that it was like 
they went into a black hole because they never came back. Once they found Saxon Math and once they worked with John Saxon, they never came back to accepting any other way. And I'm thinking this paragraph pretty much says it all because you become a believer. You really do become a believer because it is so full of truth and clarity. And I, I, I'm just, Jenny, I have to tell you, reading these chapters out loud, because as I've told you before, it's been a while since I've read this book from beginning to end. And reading it now has been so wonderful for me because you get to know John Saxon. You get to know him as a person. And I think that's so important right now. We need people we can believe in. And he was a truly honest, dedicated, totally God-oriented man in helping children. Yeah, and I have crossed paths with so many homeschoolers who, as soon as I asked the question, what math curriculum do you use? And they would respond, Saxon. We were immediate friends. It It was such a huge point of connection to just know that this other mom had seen the light. Yeah. And and it, it, it opens up to a common communication then, too. There's not about, oh, I don't know why you use that or you should use so-and-so. Then you could talk about how you were using it effectively. When we lived in Utah, I worked as a yoga educator at the local studio. And my boss was a woman who had been homeschooled by her mother. And occasionally her mother would come help at the studio. And we got talking one day and I was homeschooling my youngest son at the time, of course, using the Saxon books for, I think it was in fifth grade at the time. And she told me about her daughter who had just been hired to teach the AP math classes at a high school in Page, Arizona. And she told me how, you know, she had just done Saxon all the way through and added other curriculums and and, uh, subjects here and there. But that that was the heart of her homeschooling efforts was this daily math lesson. And here she'd come up with a kid who she was young. I think she was like 24 when they hired her because I met her too. And she comes in to teach these advanced classes with this rock solid education. And it was just joyful. Again, crossing paths with other true believers. And uh, we definitely spoke the same language. Yeah, it's um, I'm so grateful that you contacted me And it never crossed my mind to do a podcast or to read this book aloud. And this has been one of my complete joys now. We've talked about the fact I'm 82 years old. And we've talked about my being 82 years old and, and tutoring now kids using Saxon at the Catholic school. They don't use Saxon, but they allow me to use it in my tutoring and they are going to switch back to more traditional uh, program next year. But I attended a birthday party yesterday for a friend who just turned 90. And she and I taught 40 years together, uh, 40 years ago together. And it's so amazing that when she and I talk that how important it is to be in, in good math programs and for her to find out that I'm doing this podcast with you, she was so excited because she said, oh, we've got to get more out there. We've got to tell the people what's going on. And I said, and we're doing our best. 
because John Saxon's story will tell a lot of people what a magnificent man he was, but what a brilliant man he was for creating the program he did. Well, and that chapter really illustrated how he was so clear when his son's friends would come visiting from the local college and he, he told them what he was doing, you know, clearly. Yeah. Now, I know the Lord pres preserved his life and kept him going so he could write his books. And I, I like to think he's pleased with what we're doing right now, too. I know it. I believe it with all of my heart. So thank you, Jenny, for having the foresight and the guts and the determination to make this work. Yeah, I do, because I do feel like we are still being trifled with. I think we had at least seven and maybe eight interruptions in this show. And this just doesn't happen when I'm talking about other topics on Colin. It's it's frustrating. Yeah, it's okay. We'll win. Yes, yes. Well, I hope you have a wonderful week. We will pick this up next week with the rest of Chapter 7. As always, you can go to Nikki's website, SaxonMathWarrior.com. Did I get that right? Yes. Saxon Math Warrior and purchase a copy of her book. The Kindle version is being worked on and hopefully will be available sooner than later. And you can find the rest of this podcast series on my Substack, which is jennyhatch.substack.com. And I have posted all of the audio files as well as an edited video version that takes out all of the glitches that's available front and center on my Substack. Please share this work. If you have friends or colleagues who are asking what's wrong with math in America, we really have the answers. And I told my husband when we started this project, I said, if anyone has written a definitive history of the math wars in America, I've never Jenny, read it. The own, the own, did I break up? Yeah, it, right after you said, if you have friends asking what's wrong with math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. They're so... They're so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you have friends, loved ones, colleagues who are asking, what is wrong with math in America? I would point you to Nikki's book because it, it puts the math war history front and center, especially in that preface to the book, which we have made video and podcast versions of the preface, the text of it, is on my on my Substack. You can read it for yourself, this history. And it's the history itself that is so damning to where we are today. Because all these things you're hearing now about math being racist, it was started back in the day. And John was the one who said, this is racist, this is sexist. He was very clear that children all have the same gray matter in their heads and yeah. that we should not uh, balkanize our children into math proficient and math dumb or math disabled. That if we would use this proper curriculum, they would all learn math. So I would point you in the direction of those resources and open your heart to the truth of how long this has been going on, how much money is being made today based on those math deficiencies with our children and ask that those in positions of power perhaps invite Nikki 
to come and testify somewhere about the racketeering and monopolization of math that has gone on for way too long in American education. And I look forward to better days ahead for all of our children. Any final words, Nikki? No, just thank you so much. And Jenny, we, we're going to keep going. We're just going to, like John, he just never quit. He just never yeah. quit. And that's what we're going to keep doing. Yes, we are. I hope you all have a wonderful week. We will be back. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Bye-bye.